A love feast is a beautiful thing. And it evolved from a period of time when they did do the Eucharist and the meal together as one large event. They would meet together since they had everything in common. They would eat and then they would, re and then they would remember Jesus. They'd have the meal. And then over time, that got separated, and there was a desire to reinstitute it, and they reinstituted it instead of with communion, with a, with a uh, love feast. But um, the Moravians didn't do it at Thanksgiving because they didn't have Thanksgiving, did they? The Morav no, the German Moravians did it every time they met for a great big meal as their church community. And then Wesley latched onto it and recommended it for the American churches during the American Revolutionary War because during that war all the Anglican priests had been pulled out except for two and you couldn't have communion and you couldn't have baptisms because you didn't have ordained clergy and Wesley says you're not going to do that in the Methodist communities or in the Church of England leftover communities there in the, new, in the colonies unless you have clergy. So the, civil, the Revolutionary War was what started that. And, but he did say, why don't you do the Moravian Love Feast? Uh -huh. And they did. But they didn't have a great big meal with it. They just did the Love Feast. The cider and some bread. Or okay. water and bread. And then they decided they didn't like that idea very much. And so after the Revolutionary War came to a close with the Treaty of Paris in 1783, they decided they wanted to have ordained clergy, and so they asked John Wesley to ordain or to provide clergy for America. He tried to get the Church of England to send their priests back, because at that time Methodism was part of the Church of England. They said, no, we can't do that. It would be a tacit recognition of the validity of the colonies and their independence. And the Bishop of London said, I'm not going to send any clergy back. I'll get in trouble with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the Archbishop of Canterbury said, I don't want to lose my head to King George III or Lord North, so what am I going to do? I'm not going to do anything. So they didn't send any clergy back, and they wouldn't let John Wesley, uh, they, he said, well, if you're not going to send any clergy back, make me a bishop and I'll send clergy. Well, we can't do that either because we can't get the, Greek, the king to agree to it. And at that time, if the king didn't say, you, this person here can become a bishop, forget it. And by that time, Georgia III was really la la doo <laughs> And so... <laughs> Uh, he was rather crazy. So um, they were having trouble getting bishops for England uh, selected and consecrated. He, he was very dragging, much dragging his heels on authorizing those, and the act of supremacy gave him trouble. So John Wesley said, oh, heck, I'm a bishop anyway, I'll do it. And so he did. <laughs> he pointed himself bishop, basically. In essence. Yeah. He said, I've been acting like a bishop for the Methodist communities for 50 years since I've been acting like a bishop. Uh, in, a, in training and appointing, I will consecrate and sin. And that's exactly what he did. And he founded the Methodist Episcopal Church in 1784 in, under his direction at Christmas Eve. And um, they came over and they, the, the bishop that he created and two of the clergy that he uh, ordained sent them over and they started the Methodist Episcopal Church. But that was all politics. And that was so that they could then have, have the sacraments in America. And that's how the church started. I didn't mean to give you a really quick history of Methodist Church, but that's how that happened. But it's closely, but it's connected to the need for having sacraments. And that's important for what we've been talking about in both our reading from the synoptics and tonight a bit from John on the centrality of this meal as a reformation 
I'm in that on purpose, reformation of the Passover Seder, which is the central high holy moment in all of Judaism. And that high holy moment in Judaistic practice, which continues to this day in Judaism. And Jesus took it and changed it. And it was scandalous when he changed it. But he changed it in a way that makes this meal a central high holy moment of the Christian faith. And the concepts, therefore, of sacramental understanding uh, are very important in the history of the church coming down to today. It's the subject I wrote my doctoral dissertation on. But, um, and fundamentally, there are two ways of understanding communion, and only two. There are lots of variations within those two ways, but there are two ways and only two. You've got memorialism. Here's God up in heaven. On earth, you've got communion table, bread, and you've got Christians gathered around the table. All right? In memorialism, what happens is God's grace goes directly to the believers when they engage in worship, when they pray, when they sing hymns, when they hear the scriptures read and proclaimed, when they give, when they serve, when they meet at the table of the Lord and receive the elements, God's grace goes directly to the people. All right? What's here is pretty much irrelevant. So long as you're engaging in something that Jesus ordered you to do, an ordinance, then God's grace will come to you, directly to you, without regard for what's in the middle. So the reading of scripture, hymn singing, the Lord's Supper, baptism, it's all an ordinance, something Jesus ordered us to do. And as we're engaged in the process, we are then blessed by God to receive God's grace. It's, and what they're doing when they go to the table is they're remembering what Jesus did for them and how Jesus died for them. And hence, God's grace comes to them directly. Uh, that makes communion and everything that you do in the course of worship a good work. All right? That's memorialism. So is that why they picked out just the changes that Jesus made and, and dropped all the rest of it? No. Um, that's, it, it relates to it, yes. Actually, that'll come in a minute. Okay. But it's... It's part of it. The, the focus is on Jesus and what Jesus is and what Jesus does and the changes Jesus made. Yes, that is correct. What you're remembering is his death on the cross. What you're remembering is what he ordered you to do as the family of God in coming to the table. What's in here is quite nearly irrelevant. And for those churches that accept this model, and they include the Baptists, 
and the Church of Christ, pretty much any denomination or church, Baptist by any other name type church, non-denominational <laughs> denominations, as I like to call them, those vineyard churches and churches that, well, we're not a part of a denomination, we're just Christians. Yeah, right. The fellowship churches. Fellowship churches. We're not Baptist. Oh, really? Okay, let's see. How do you baptize people? Well, we immerse them in water, of course. And who do you immerse? Believers. You're Baptist. <laughs> okay. These particular groups are amongst those that have this understanding. They follow a teaching, the teachings of a man named Zwingli. And Zwingli was one of the reformers along with John Calvin in Europe during the Protestant Reformation, who essentially invented this as part of the Protestant Reformation. Strict memorialism, which views what's going on in the ordinance as irrelevant to the fall of God's grace on the believer, is a Zwingliian invention. Strict memorialism was invented with the Protestant Reformation. The, the uh, Church of Christ, made up of Campbellites, they want to recreate the New Testament church. But what they're doing is they're drawing their understanding for communion from Zwingli, who was part of the Protestant Reformation, not the New Testament church. But it's memorialism. It's also called Zwinglianism or ordinance theology. And if you have this understanding, what's important is not what's going on in here, but what's going on out here in the community, all right? Hence, it's the community that authorizes the communion, not the church hierarchy, let us say. And so, since the community is what's important, you can have communion without ordained clergy, properly recognized representatives of the church. Uh, and memorialism was that community in which the, the, the churches that accept memorialism also allow non-ordained people to lead in Holy Communion on a regular basis. And they can do everything else too. Yeah, they can. Now, most Baptist churches and most churches of Christ and most non-denominational churches still ordain their clergy and the regular celebrants and communion and the regular people who baptize and the regular people who preach, the people who do that regularly are usually ordained, but it's by the congregation. And they're also usually men. Yeah, with, with some They're ordained by the congregation? They're usually ordained in what's known as congregational ordination. This is the type of church government, congregationalism in which the congregation or their representatives in the board of deacons lays hands on the person they've called to be their pastor. And they ordain usually him. <laughs> so do they need any credentials? Uh-uh. Whatever the credentials the congregation wants. See, this would have been good for Wesley to think about. <laughs> it was presented to him as an option. The three forms of government are Episcopal, Presbyteral, and Congregational. This is congregationalism, and he rejected it 100% for multiple reasons. One of those is you don't need credentialing. Uh -huh. Anything goes uh -huh. kind of idea. The, the, um, <laughs> for, for his magic. The asylum. <laughs> huh? 
the inmates run the asylum? Oh yeah, that's about right. Yes, yes. There are elements of this idea that are good. What's important in many respects, in terms of what's going on in the community of faith, ends up being a very critical part of the importance of communion. They retain that. They're not wrong in that. Um, Roman Catholic would say this is entirely wrong. Yes, for them. We would reject it as not reflective of the tradition and experience of the church. Is there biblical warrant for this? Not really. The New Testament church seemed to have well-selected leaders selected by the apostles, by the leadership of the church that brought the message to those local congregations. Those local congregations never selected their own, never selected for them. But leadership within the church was a localized event, i.e. what the church was going to do in any particular place. Their leaders might be chosen by the apostles, but they themselves get to make lots of local decisions. And that's supported by Scripture. So all these guys on the TV telling me to send them my money don't, don't necessarily have a look at education. No. They're usually, they, they don't, well, in the Southern Baptist Convention today, probably better than half of the clergy have at least a Master's of Divinity from a Southern Baptist seminary. And you can get a fairly decent education from them if you're willing to apply yourself. But, um, but, if, but if you're a Protestant overall, you can't follow this early church tradition too literally because otherwise you can't be a Protestant. You well, you'd still be Catholic. That's, that's, that's a good question. Okay, let's look at the... That was, that, was, that was pattern one. Here's the, here's the other. That was the one way in which a large chunk of the church actually functions. Okay, Now, it's not really the majority even. Here's the other way. You've got God up in heaven. You've got a table with the cup and the bread. And you've got the congregation gathered around. I'm not known for my stick figures. <laughs> gathered around the table. And what happens is, what? I was just agreeing with you said you're not known for the cup and the bread either. I, no, I'm not. Sorry. Looks like a cup Art of mushrooms. Not his <laughs> I am not Picasso. Actually, I was just admiring the, the efficiency of those yeah, lines. Yeah, very efficient. It's just, yeah, I mean, it, it gets the point across very yes, well. All right. That's a little better, except it still looks like a mushroom cloud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, there's that. <laughs> God, in this, the other form of how to understand communion, God's grace, when the congregation meets for worship, God's grace comes on the elements and then from the elements to the congregation. God to the elements, elements to the congregation. Hmm? Now, whose method is this? Now, just a minute. Now, okay. in here can be any of the means of grace, not just communion. You can have the reading and study of Scripture, what we're doing tonight. You can have singing hymns, prayers, 
service, giving, foot washing, any of the multitude of means of grace. Baptism, remembrance of baptism, can all be in there. And when the congregation meets and engages in worship together, God's grace falls to the activity, to the element, and then from the activity or element to the congregant. How did that guy get three eyes? Martian. <laughs> He's a Martian, yeah. Yeah. I believe in ecumenism even among Martians. <laughs> anyway. So. Now. The act doesn't necessarily have to be communion. It can be any oh, yeah. act. Okay. That's the essence of, of sacramental theology that is often missed on most people. It's not just about communion and baptism. It's about anything that we do in faith. It connects us to God. Okay. God's grace falls in and through the event or action or element. And then from that element or action to us. You can have a Bible in there. Have a hymns in there, whatever, and all. Actually, all of that is part of what goes on in communion. The scriptures are read and proclaimed, hymns are sung, prayers are prayed. The table is then gone to, and when you eat and drink, God's grace flows to you. Now, this is the understanding that dominates the world, the theological view of the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. Oh. The Lutherans, the Anglicans, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, modern Presbyterians, and Calvinists. And all of those denominations and groups that evolved from them, like the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the Wesleyan churches, they all tend to follow this understanding, the disciples of Christ, which is made up of, of um, multiple elements, uh, some of them Campbellite and having that other idea, the memorialism idea, but many of them close, more closely related to the Methodists, and they kept this idea. And the Moravians had this idea. And because they had this idea, what happens in here is so critically important to the flow of God's grace that you have to have proper oversight in the church by a church hierarchy, by people who are properly credentialed, by those who are ordained, to enable it to function assuredly, properly. And uh, this, is, this is known as means of grace or sacramentalism or instrumentalism. Which goes more back to traditional Hebrew. Yes, it does. This is, this is rooted more in the Hebraic understanding okay. of how it functions. Because God's grace flows at the temple in the sacrifice to the people. And the priest who has been, who's been prayed over receives all of the sins of the people. And then he projects them onto the lamb. And then that lamb is then slaughtered. Or, in the case of the scapegoat, the lamb is then run out of the community. All right? Two different ideas. So are all of these guys educated? No, these are the, this is the congregation. No, I'm talking about the, the religious. Oh, yes. Yeah, so you have... Yeah. Uh, well, it depends on what you mean by educated. Um, for a very long time, the leadership here, which is all we had, because originally we were Roman Catholics. Right. Um... They had, they had training 
Kind of like we do for some of our clergy, we don't send them to seminary, we send them to course of study, and they're trained in how to interpret the Bible, and they're trained in how to do communion, and that kind of stuff. Well, the same thing was true here. For a very long time, Roman Catholic clergy, only a few of them received a really high education. Most of them were simply trained in how to function as a priest, like any profession. But you had training, and you had to be credentialed, and you had to be ordained twice as a deacon and as priest by a bishop who was in apostolic succession from bishops going all the way back to Jesus. Okay. Who had been picked by Peter and James, who had never been inside of school. <laughs> right. <laughs> but had received education at Jesus' own foot. Hence, that's the idea. They were credentialed they don't by Jesus. Better, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's why they had to. You to would say that fish don't that. school. <laughs> and Paul and, and Paul uh, had a good Hebrew rabbinic training at the feet of Gamaliel. But he, he was the first one who came on the outside yes! and tried to, <laughs> and tried to <laughs> oppress the church, then got converted. And his very important, very important, Paul is, in establishing the concept of a properly chosen apostolic ministry. He was an apostle. He chooses his successor in a church. His directions to them was, you choose very carefully who will succeed you. And but supposedly that Paul was not chosen by, by the Peter or Peter James, James or John. He, or he just claimed that God came to yeah. him directly. And, so, and Peter, which is what your TV guys do mostly. And Peter, yes, Peter, James, and John, however, then said, yes, we agree. You've been chosen by God to do this. So they recognized Jesus' choosing of Paul. But you're right. In many ways, he was self-selected, believed that Jesus did, and was the first to have theological training amongst them. Well, we just saw about how Peter was predicted. It's not likely Peter would have put up with that unless he thought it was for real. I agree. Now, um... This approach, then, is interpreted in many different ways by this group over here. We share the same basic idea with our Roman Catholic <laughs> brothers and sisters, but their understanding of what happens right here differs greatly in the details from what we believe. In this group, we are in 100% agreement with the, with the Anglicans, and about 95% agreement with the Lutherans, enough that we've been able to enter into full communion with them. We get our, we get our theology from the Anglicans, and John Wesley didn't change it, and we haven't changed it, so it stays the same. The Presbyterians and Calvinists have kind of shifted a little bit. While they accepted this idea, they, they struggled with the, the concept some settled down pretty much in line with the rest of us. The Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church will make a very specific claim, though, as to how this whole thing functions. Um, they will say that the bread and the cup, the bread and the wine, while they still smell, taste, look, and feel like bread and wine, their ontological substance has become the flesh and blood of Jesus. So the accidents, how they look and smell and taste on the outside, don't change. But their substance changes a very philosophical idea, totally non-biblical, <laughs> uh, uh, but, but was an evolution of the Middle Ages. 
finally codified by Thomas Aquinas. That's in transubstantiation. That's transubstantiation. The idea that the substance is transformed. Transubstantiation. The original Lutheran understanding, as Martin Luther and Melanchthon identified it, was consubstantiation. That the bread and the wine remain bread and wine, but with them come the flesh and blood of Jesus. They've kind of backed away from consubstantiation in recent generations. And while they're still their official position, they don't really know what it means. In fact, one of their, their bishops said, we believe in consubstantiation if we can only figure out what the heck it means. That's pitiful. Which actually, it puts them into the camp with us. Our position is known as holy mystery. We have no idea how this thing functions. And we don't care. And we don't really care and try to explain it. We simply know it's real. God's grace, when we meet and worship, God's grace comes into that event and then from it to us. Hence, sometimes instead of transubstantiation or consubstantiation, we talk about conduit. This becomes a conduit through which God's grace flows to us. The action or the element or the event is a means, instrument, vehicle, conduit through which grace comes to us. How that becomes the bread and blood of Jesus in our lives, we refuse to explain. We reject transubstantiation because it's a development of the Middle Ages. But this basic idea of holy mystery goes back to the church fathers of the third century. One of them is the one who coined the concept of holy mystery. And he, would, he said, how we eat the flesh and blood of Jesus when we eat bread and wine, I cannot explain. We simply believe it is true. It is a holy mystery of God's grace. And that was where we got it from. That was um, well, John Chrysostom. It's symbolic. It's, it's symbolic and more than symbolic. The idea is that when we talk about real presence, the real presence of Jesus, mm -hmm. we mean real, in a sense more real, than the existence of this marker here. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit of philosophical, philosophical understanding. The things spiritual are more real than things physical. Absolutely. That was the understanding of the, of the Reformers when they wrote in the Methodist article of religion, actually when it was written in the Church of England's Articles of Religion, which we adopted. They wrote in the Protestant Reformation that we receive the body and blood of Jesus in the sacrament in a holy, spiritual, heavenly manner. After a holy, spiritually, heavenly manner. And by that, they didn't mean less real than here. They meant more real than here. And we have kind of reversed <coughs> that understanding. And so what one of the things that is, we've been trying to say as a church has been, the denomination has been saying, when we say Jesus is really present, we mean it. We mean it. Now, I got myself in a little bit of trouble about seven years ago when I said that... Transubstantiation for Methodists doesn't happen here. It happens here. 
the body of Christ, the biblical concept of the church being the body of Christ, well, you still look and smell and even taste like yourself. Bite your tongue and find out. But you become the hands and the feet and the eyes and the ears of Jesus, the biblical concept. And it's not just symbolism, but it is symbolism. It's not just signification, i.e. these elements signify the body and blood of Jesus. It's that and more. They don't become Jesus, but through them, Jesus comes into us. Or to say it slightly differently, and this is what got me in trouble, but I, I, I don't care, I still say it. <laughs> through them, they don't become Jesus, but through them, we become Jesus for others. And hence, exactly, hence, we become, we may be the only Jesus anybody may ever see. Absolutely. Hence, what we do, how we treat people, how we receive people or reject them, is critically important. Mm -hmm. Now, and when I say I got in trouble, all I mean is that the, the, the committee, the study commission committee said, we don't know if we're comfortable with that, <laughs> with saying that we are transubstantiated. And then when I re-articulated it that way, I said, oh, we agree with that. Oh, yeah. I said, well, that's Pauline. I would hope so. So anyway. Um, you know, all that works <laughs> if, when you talk about process, but when you try to talk about the mechanics as one way, shape, or form, eating the flesh of Jesus and drinking the blood of Jesus in whatever form, uh -huh. it's just very difficult yes. to, to take. Which is precisely what John's gospel was doing. This understanding is implicit in John's gospel. When Jesus says, this is my flesh, the, it's the bread that came down from heaven, eat me, literally. And it, it's extraordinarily difficult to deal with as a process. And that's how it's usually understood in the, in the church. Even the Roman Catholics prefer to talk about it as a process. It works. But when you... Make a substance out of it. You start getting trouble. But they want to, but there are Roman Catholic brothers and sisters want to be clear that this is real and true and effectual and there's nothing that you can do to stop it from working. <clears throat> so could I go into any one of these churches and take communion and accept it in my meaning? You can do it amongst the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Anglicans, and the Lutherans. But the Catholics wouldn't let me. You can do it amongst some Eastern Orthodox churches, but you really can't do it amongst uh, Roman Catholics, yes? You can't go in a Lutheran. Evangelical yes, Lutheran church. Perhaps, not, I don't know, but when Missouri I just... <coughs> you can amongst the Missouri Synod, but the Evangelical oh, okay. Lutheran church, you can. Uh, We're in full communion with the Evangelical Chuck and I Lutheran went and church. I visited my cousin, uh -huh. who's Lutheran. Yes. When I grew up in the Lutheran Church, I didn't even realize it. But when we went back, we couldn't partake of it. We felt kind of insulted. Yes, that is insulting. Yeah, it is insulting. It is insulting. The Missouri Synod and the Wisconsin Synod in the United States, you cannot receive unless you're part of those two communions. I think it's insulting the Catholic Church. But in the, well, I agree. I respect that it's their decision, but I totally disagree with them. And, um, the Pope made an interesting argument about why, in, in a book that he wrote prior to being made Pope, he made an interesting argument for why the table should be closed. And in the argument, he said it was a meal amongst the inner 11. Judas had already left. 
and I, I'm reading the synoptics, that's not necessarily <laughs> true. <laughs> we don't know that, holiness. So are we the Judas? We appreciate that. Huh? Is he referring to us as the Judases then? He refers to people who are not part of the Catholic Church as being like unto Judas. Oh. Not necessarily Judases, but people who are not yet part of the 11 or in the, yeah, in the 12. Now, now, Rome... Rome is happy that we have this understanding, but they're not happy that we reject transubstantiation. We would have to accept transubstantiation and the authority of the Pope for them to allow us to partake of communion on a regular basis in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, they can eat, they can eat and receive here all they want. And I don't care what people believe, so long as they come and receive. Yeah, I brought some Baptists here, one of them took communion. Baptist, I don't care. You can, have you can come and receive with your own understanding. And so long as you are serious in what you're doing and not making fun of it, I don't care. It's between you and God. In the Presbyterian Church, they want you to be confirmed. They want you to be confirmed. And if you're a member, you have to be confirmed. You have to be a communicant member. A communicant member. The, it also depends on which Presbyterian Church you're talking about. In the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America which is the largest single body that exists of Presbyterians in the United States, they will allow adult baptized Christians of other denominations to receive provisionally. So like if you were to visit a Presbyterian church and you are a baptized Christian and an adult, they'll let you receive. But if you want to join their church, you've got to go through the process and they'll want you to hold off until you're confirmed. Uh -huh. They don't take communion a lot. It, I was about to say, was it once a year or something? No, depends. No. It depends on the Presbyterian well, community. In our church, it was once, once a month. Were you PCA or PCUSA? Or were you Cumberland? No, it was USA, I'm pretty sure. PCUSA? Okay. Well, the, There was a US. There's the PCA and the PCUSA. Then the PCUSA was formed in the PCUS and the, and the PC... I think they just called themselves the Presbyterian Church. And they merged to form the PCUSA. Okay, and the PCA was the conservative breakoff of them who refused to merge. Uh -huh. And then the Cumberland Presbyterian Church is very conservative. And you can't receive there unless you're a member of that congregation. Oh, wow. Okay. But that's them. When I'm talking about these groups, when I mean these people, I mean Presbyterian Church, United States of America, or Presbyterian Geneva, as in Europe. There, if you come as an adult Christian, and you come forward to receive, they will not reject you. But they will talk to you later and find out what your intent was. If you're just visiting and you're moving on, they don't care. They're happy to receive you. If, if however, you have an interest in joining their church, they will ask you to hold off from receiving communion until you've gone through the process and they make sure that you understand the, the, the Presbyterian approach and then they'll confirm you and you're fine. But they don't, they don't require big baptism or anything like yeah, that. Right. Hmm. All right. Um, that's the two. That's the two basic understandings: memorialism on one hand, and instrumentalism on the other. In the instrumental process, it's important to have properly authorized, ordained, trained, educated people to oversee this. Hence, the concept of ordained clergy to oversee this. 
Um, like your word assured before, assured that this works. Mm -hmm. Rather yep. than oversee, actually. Yeah. Well, it depends yeah. on on the group you use. Methodists tended to use oversee. Superintendent is the idea. The superintend the process. Mm -hmm. Ensure it is and assure it is a very another good way of talking about it. Well, the superintendent sounds Anglican. It sounds like it is something England. It yeah, is. Funny thing about that. Yeah, there is. I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, yes. I was just wondering about the sacraments and the. No, according to the Articles of Religion, which we share with them, they have the two dominical sacraments, baptism and Holy Communion. They then recognize, just as we recognize, the importance of marriage, uh, burial, uh, remembrance of baptism, which is in confirmation, um, extreme unction, all the basic other the other sacraments, the other five. Sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, but they don't call them sacraments. They call them sacramentals. They have holy aspects to them. They are useful for the Christian life. Marriage is a very important thing to have. Um, prayers and in the funeral service for the for the you know, survivors is a very important thing to have. Confirmation. We actually put confirmation together with baptism, so we kind of put them together as one. And you look in our hymnal, the baptismal liturgy, confirmation immediately follows it. Mm -hmm. It's part of the same thing. The Anglicans do pretty much the same thing. Roman Catholics, Catholics remove it completely and make a completely separate sacrament out of it. All right. And this came this happened because of Henry VIII. The, the split between the Church of England and Roman Catholicism? Uh -huh. Henry VIII wanted to divorce Catherine of Aragon so he could marry Anne Boleyn. So I can see why he would want marriage to not be a sacrament. <laughs> not well, not well, a sacrament well, under the control, not a, not of the same well, character. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now the Protestant Reformation on the mainland had a major impact on the Church of England okay. and their sacramental understanding and Lutheranism, which also rejected penance, which was the other biggie amongst Roman Catholics. In the Church of England, they still have the the they call it the sacrament of reconciliation. What they mean is essentially penance. I've gone through it many times. We have it too. On Sundays when we've done a prayer in a congregation, a unison prayer followed by words of absolution, that's the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. It's just done congregationally. But it can be done individually if you want. Okay, so the, that, was, that all, the split up of the sacraments happened during the Protestant It happened during the Protestant Reformation, first on the mainland and then increasingly in England. And I remember Bloody Mary comes back to power. She reestablishes the Catholic Church. And then uh, she dies. Elizabeth comes back into power, brings the Protestant uh, bishops back over from the mainland to reestablish the Church of England as a separate from the Roman Catholic Church. And they brought back with them lots of Protestant mainland thought, Lutheran and Calvinist thought. And it got filtered and adjusted and... and accepted and rejected and modified in the Church of England so that eventually the Church of England, and it went through a period and when they became very Protestant, they looked like Baptists. I mean, they didn't wear vestments, nothing. Communion once a quarter, I mean, it was bad. Then they reestablished vestments and whatnot, but they still didn't do much with communion. And in, and in John Wesley's day, when John Wesley was ordained a priest in the early 1700s, they only had communion once a quarter in the Anglican churches. He was horrified by it. 
Preaching was terrible. Communion was awful. He didn't have it. And so he called for communion every week and was actually the principal person responsible for reestablishing over a period of 50 years communion every single Sunday in the Church of England. Wow. And the Anglicans themselves have him in their, in their prayer list for not saints of the church, but the feast days of the leaders of the church, principally because he did that. Are there any other questions? I know this is way off the scripture, but from the, from, the, from the synoptics and from John, the Lord's Supper actually takes a principle, and it's come so close to the death of Jesus, it takes a principal importance in the whole experience of the church. When we get around to reading the Acts of the Apostles after we've done John, we will see how important that meal is in the life of the church from very early on all the way through. And it continued very important, and it's important today. That's why we call it Word and Table. If you look in your hymnal, you'll see the basic worship service that we use is called Word and Table. It, the, and, and the sanctuary is wonderful. It has the three pieces are roughly the same massiveness. You've got the altar table and the pulpit and the baptismal font, which is you're going to shove it over in the corner there. Um, but you've got the altar table and the pulpit, the word and, the, and table taking up important critical elements right there smack dab in the middle of your worship. This sanctuary is a really good illustration of what we mean when we talk about um, worship in the history of the church going all the way back to this. The church that wrote, the churches that wrote these gospels in which these gospels were written did this and had an understanding of communion that wasn't far removed from this basic idea of instrumentalism. To them, when they would eat and drink together, they were in the immediate real presence of Jesus and they knew it. And they knew that real presence very often in their neighbors. So that very idea becomes, and that, that one element in the neighbors is that point where memorialism is right. In the end, what's important is what happens in the believer. The instrumentality function is important for other reasons. But the believer being the end game of where the grace goes stays the same. Uh-huh. Exactly. So that's why we don't need the Seder to go along with it. The what? No, that's why we that is why we don't need the Passover Seder. They stripped off the other stuff and left what Jesus changed. Exactly right. That's exactly what they did. We don't have the bitter herbs wrapped in unleavened bread. We don't have the other cups. We we could have ended up having two cups yeah. if if the church that Luke was writing in had had its way, but they didn't, and that, that idea dropped pretty early on in the process. By the end of the by the end of the first century, there's no reference to it being done that way anywhere. And our best references to early communion services are found in the Didache, which was written in the 100, early 100s, and they don't mention anywhere uh, more than one cup. So, and there in the Didache, which was written in the early 100s, they say things like when you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you're eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And a very simplistic understanding. But then they say, and when you do this, Jesus comes to reside in you, and then you are to turn and share Jesus with others. 
So it's a simplistic mechanism, but the result ends up being the same. And the Roman Catholic Church evolved from that understanding, and we come from them, through the Anglicans. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.